Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, where we share the stories of the Strong Towns movement in action. I'm Rachel. Today's episode features a very special guest, my colleague, Lauren Fisher. She works as Strong Towns Communication Associate. And if you're subscribed to our email list, which you should be, head to strongtowns.org slash email if you want to sign up, then you've probably received emails from her at some point or another. She also manages our social media and our press communications. But I invited her on the show today not to talk about her job at Strong Towns, but to talk about her life, her home, and her neighborhood. Lauren grew up in Alaska, both what she calls the big city, and also a very remote fly-in only region. And today she lives in rural Wisconsin on a burgeoning homestead with her husband. She has a dog, a cat, several rabbits and chickens, and will hopefully have goats or a cow very soon. Lauren is dedicated to building up household resilience, which for her family means trying to develop more and more food options that they can raise, grow, forage, and hunt themselves. But she's also the first to tell you that these sorts of efforts have to start small. She doesn't own acres and acres of land, but instead she's found creative ways to practice producing local food and build up her efforts gradually. In addition, she and her husband have cultivated many other important skills for self-sufficiency, like sewing, construction, electrical work, and they're always seeking to learn more. But for Lauren, these skills are not just about sustaining her own family. They're also about being part of a larger community. In this conversation, she talks about how she's gotten to know her neighbors after moving to her area a few years ago and how they support each other through the good times and the tough times. She offers advice for those who want to connect better with their neighbors. Yes, even introverts, of which Lauren is one, can make friends with their neighbors. Lauren's focus is on abundance and sharing, on finding the bounty of talent and goodness in yourself and those around you, and strengthening a community together with those building blocks. So here's my conversation with Lauren. So Lauren Fisher, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's great to be able to feature you on the show. Thanks so much, Rachel. I was really flattered at the invitation. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and also how you ended up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin? Yeah, sure thing. So I am 26 years old. I play music. I do fiber crafts. Uh, My husband and I are really enthusiastic about local food and local food systems. We live here with a dog and a cat and three rabbits and what I will describe as a totally legal amount of chickens. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm originally from Fairbanks, Alaska. I grew up in the interior and I spent like three years in a bush village called Galena. And then I did high school in a little highway community called Nanana, which is where I met my husband. We got married shortly before I graduated from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And Then we decided to move to Wisconsin in part because Montana didn't work out and in part because my husband has a lot of family in this area. That's where his uh, people are originally from. 
So we've been here since about 2016. Uh, before I was at Strong Towns, I did a little bit of work at a hyper-local arts and culture magazine called Volume One Magazine. So I also do like writing and journalism and those sorts of fun things. Yeah. And our listeners um, flip back a few episodes and you'll note um, our conversation with Nick Meyer, who is the founder of Volume One. So Lauren made that connection for us. I was really excited to listen to that one too. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Alaska born and raised, has it been uh, challenging to be away from Alaska or were you always like, okay, I'm not going to be here forever? Uh, when I was young, when I was in high school and college, I was like, I'm going to live here for my whole life. I'm going to raise my kids here. And we we got to a point where things just changed. Our priorities changed. And um, Alaska is really expensive to live in, it turns out. But Mikhail, like I said, he's got family in this area. And at the time, some of his older family members who he was close with didn't have a lot of time left. So we made it a priority to come here and spend time with them and kind of planted here somewhat on purpose. It's becoming more on purpose over time. But I miss Alaska a lot. I love, I miss the mountains. I miss the topography and the quiet. So what is your community and your neighborhood like in Wisconsin? And why did you choose that place? I know that uh, like definitely the family drew you there, but it seems like you and your husband think like pretty intentionally about the places you live. Why were you drawn there? And what is, what's your neighborhood like? I definitely think we've become more intentional in the time since we moved to this neighborhood. So I actually live in a rural township called Springbrook, which is about six miles west of Eau Claire. And maybe like nine miles east of a college town called Menominee, which is where uh, University of Wisconsin Stout is. Um, We spent about three years living in downtown Eau Claire when we moved to Wisconsin. And for a time, we're able to walk to our places of employment and walk to the farmer's market. It probably wasn't super healthy or uh, good for my savings that I could walk to a yarn store or a quilt store downtown. Um, but when we decided that we wanted to buy our own home, we knew that we wanted to move to a slightly more rural area because we both come from rural communities and that's kind of what we're used to. We knew that we wanted a little bit more land, a little bit more privacy, and a little bit more ability to raise our own food and animals on, on our land to really like build the land and make it a sustaining piece of property. So we started looking for a house uh, in 2017. And in 2018, I started to look at the place where we currently live very seriously. It had been on the market for a long time. It ended up being the only house that we actually went and looked at. It was in the right price range. It was the right amount of land. It was the right amount of rural, but still close enough to where uh, we both worked. And most importantly, like you have to drive down a hill to get into it. And as we were driving down the hill to have a little bit of topography around me, to have a hill at my back felt really calming. And it reminded me of home. Wisconsin's not like super flat by any stretch of the imagination, but it's pretty flat compared to like the mountainous region I come from. So I felt super at home here. And that is why we ended up in this neighborhood. And since then, like it's been the best choice. We really lucked out with this community. That's awesome. 
And what are some of the ways that you've built up your household to be like resilient? You mentioned your rabbits and chickens and like, what are some of the things that you're doing to kind of be self-sustaining or work towards being a self-sustaining homestead sort of place? Yeah, sure thing. We got chickens within like a week of moving here. We didn't even have chicken coop. It was it was priority numero uno for me. And we found some chicks and we put them in a little brooder. And then we kind of just like figured out what we were going to house them in when they got bigger. Uh, not a very convenient way to do things, but a good example of doing things by little steps and increments. We put in a garden. Uh, we only got rabbits this spring, but that's kind of part of our food infrastructure as well. So we have uh, chickens for laying and for eating, and our rabbits are going to be for breeding stock and eventually to eat as well. We've not been as good about the garden. I think a lot of people, when they start gardening, they, they get grand plans and they're like, I'm going to grow everything I need to eat all the vegetables I want in my, in my rotation. But that's a pretty tall order. So we did like some tomatoes the first year. And then last year we had a little bit more luck. We had like lettuce, tomatoes, and we started putting in some uh, less substantive um, growing things like herbs and medicinal flowers and those sorts of things, which are a bit easier to maintain. going to be our big gardening year, but it fell through uh, because we decided that we were going to move to a house down the street. And we might talk about that a little bit later. Am I right also that like you guys like hunt and maybe fish and just are more other ways that you're connected to local food options? Yeah, we, we totally, uh, my husband hunted for the first time three years ago, Wisconsin. So deer hunting, like a, a really huge transformative experience for him and also like for our diet because all of a sudden we've got like a hundred pounds of venison which is it was new for us but also like to have that resilience built into our freezer was really nice and of course he fishes and I'm a big forager I love to go out and we were just picking raspberries up at some family land this weekend uh, and there we also have uh, some apple trees that are probably 100 years old. We have no idea what kind of apple trees they are. And some plum trees that are similarly aged. They've been not maintained for all this time because it wasn't a huge priority for this family member. But they let us go onto their land. And uh, we went out this spring and uh, trimmed them back and opened up the branches so that the apple tree should be a lot healthier and a lot more productive with fewer pests this year. So we'll be doing that in uh, late August probably is when we'll be able to harvest the apples and that's blackberry season and it's all very exciting. Awesome. I'm curious because from what I know about like the climate in Alaska, some of, you know, farming and things are pretty challenging up there. And I know that you spent some time in like a very remote area where like food has to be flown in and it's quite expensive or you have to fly to the food. Like how does that background, that experience growing up shape the way that you view resiliency in your household today? That's a really good question. And it's uh, probably complex to answer. So my, my love of foraging comes from growing up in Alaska. There were 
raspberry bushes all around the property that I grew up on. I had a pretty good understanding by the time I was grown up about like what things I could go out into the woods and eat or not eat. Um, the years that I spent in Galena were definitely interesting because Galena is a fly-in, barge-in, or snow machine-in only community on the Yukon River. Uh, there's no roads to Galena. And a lot of the people who live in that, who have lived in that area for a long time, including sourdoughs and Athabascan people, they hunt for moose primarily, and they forage and they fish. Fishing is, of course, a big part of uh, the food system in rural Alaska. But then there's also to get a lot of the stuff that you and I are used to eating on a regular basis as um, like, as since I was from Fairbanks, I was kind of a city dweller um, to, to have those, those food items, you have to get on an airplane, like a little tiny airplane and fly to the city with totes that you can fill with your groceries and fly them back. I do think that it gave me a really good appreciation for having stock put back for having uh, what you need in order to not go to a grocery store for as much as six months, a year at a time. But of course, I was uh, not doing that as hardcore as some of the people who lived in that community for much longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. I don't know sense. if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I guess I, I should say that there is farming in Alaska and it is uh, in some places more difficult, but like in Delta, Alaska, for example, there's dairy farms and people produce milk. Uh, and if you ever get the chance to go to a state fair in Alaska, we grow some of the biggest cabbages you'll ever see because of the prolonged daylight in the summer. So that produce quite a bit in the short summer season in Alaska as far as uh, vegetables go. And they become really robust, but you only get two and a half, three months of prime growing season and it's hard to store over winter. So, Yeah. It seems like you probably don't take food for granted as much if you live in some of those remote areas with the effort that it takes to, to grow it or to go get it. I think that's, that's really quite true. <laughs> Let's talk also about um, beyond your own household, like your neighborhood. You wrote this great article a few months ago on Strong Towns that I will share with everybody in the links about how to connect with your neighbors, especially as someone who's not super extroverted. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what are some of the ways that you've reached out to meet your neighbors in your, in your area that you've lived in now for a couple of years? Yeah. Do you mind if I start by telling you a little bit about this neighborhood? Just Yeah. So um, I live on Elk Creek Lake, which is a little dam-created lake, um, and there's houses all around the all around the lake itself. I live across the street from the lake, on a loop that kind of veers away from the lake and connects back to the county highway that you use to access this loop. And it's a really interesting community because some of the people who live here have lived here for decades and decades and they own property on the loop and then their children grew up 
and decided that they also wanted to live on this loop in this neighborhood. And so they purchased land right next door to their parents, and now they have children. So a lot of time you can see like multi-generational family walks uh, will pass by my house with the grandma and her daughter and her daughter's children. And it's really beautiful. And a lot of the people who live on this loop go to the church uh, that I go to, which is right down the street. Like I can walk to it. Most anybody in the neighborhood could walk to it if they wanted to. So the multi-generational families all go to the same church as well. And everybody kind of knows one another. And I think that it's really beautiful. Well, after you shared that, I'm curious, like, what was it like to be a newcomer in that neighborhood? And how did you like start to reach out and meet people, make friends, um, especially as someone who's is probably an introvert, not super extroverted? Yeah, I definitely would consider myself an introvert. Um, so fair assessment. It was definitely difficult. I, I think that something that people don't consider very often is that if you are an introvert, then being in social contexts and reaching out is work. It's difficult work, but like most difficult work, it is worth investing in. So for the first few months, we were mostly just settling in. Uh, we bought our chickens in May and they started laying in October. And so my easy in to start getting to know my neighbors was free eggs. <laughs> and, and I think that that's really useful for people who are struggling to find ways to start integrating into a bigger community is like, find that thing that you offer that, that you can contribute. And that will be a really great en entryway into your community. So I went over, I would get cartons and fill them up with eggs. And then I would write a little note that had my name on it, uh, my husband's name on it our phone number and a description of our dog. Um, and I would attach it to the egg cartons. And sometimes I would catch my neighbor and I would give it to them personally. But because I was shy and because my neighborhood is, um, we like to mind our own business. We're friendly, but we like to mind our own business. Sometimes I would just like bring the note and the eggs over to my neighbor and leave it on their front porch or something. And it easy, right? Like it's a low investment. It's extremely low risk and people appreciated it. And they started to reach back out to me. I think also very important to that strategy was giving the phone number uh, because that gives people a way to reach you that is easy. So if they think off the top of their head, oh, I should talk to Lauren about X, Y, Z, then they've got an easy way to do it. They can just jet me a text or give me a phone call instead of having to catch me next time. So it smooths, it, it reduces the barrier to entry for them to reach back out and start building a relationship. After that, like, like I said, people go on walks in the neighborhood and people are pretty friendly. So if I was walking my dog, we could have a good conversation real quick about dogs and it kind of blooms over time, I would say. That's awesome. And I guess I'm realizing like a, a flip side of having the neighborhood be a lot of people that have been there for many years, many generations, is that like, it's really obvious that there is a new person here. And so like, that's a reason to reach out and for them, hopefully to like make the connections with you too. I know that when, when we moved into our house a couple of months ago, like the neighbors next door are 
I don't remember how long they've been here, like decades and decades, like 40, 50 years. And so they were immediately like, okay, we've been here a long time. And like, we know that you are new. So we will uh, like meet you and tell you about the neighborhood. So that's awesome. Yeah. And, and that really was it. Like we, we were new and there was a curiosity probably uh, a reason for people to introduce themselves to us. But it does mean like, it's easy for everybody to remember our name, but we have to remember everybody's name. <laughs> and that's kind oh, of yeah. even thrill. <laughs> Good point. So what do you see as the connection between like individual household resilience and larger neighborhood community resilience? If you, if you see a connection there, like how does you being self-sufficient also help you to be a generous, good neighbor to people around you? Uh, yeah, this, I love this this idea, and I love it partly because I love this neighborhood. Uh, off the top of my head, in my neighborhood, there's uh, my husband's an electrician. I can fix people's clothes. We both grow food. Um, there are nurses. There are several midwives. There's a carpenter. There's Oh, gosh. Painters and interior finishers. There's some people who grew up on family-sized farms and who are familiar with the management of those sorts of farms. Uh, there's there's educators. There's just this remarkable like bounty of talent and skill. And we all are very great about sharing that bounty and skill. And that also goes for growing food. A lot of people in my neighborhood grow their own food or raise chickens or raise animals for food purposes. Um, and we, we share that around a lot. Um, so I guess an example of what you're getting at is in the spring, my husband grew some tobacco starts. He planted seeds, grew them into starts, and he was going to plant them outside in our garden, but our plant changed and I had tons of tobacco sprouts and nowhere to put them. So I took them over to one of my neighbors, uh, who is a woman who is a midwife whose husband like does solar work. They're very smart people. And I gave her these tobacco sprouts so that she could use them to feed her bees, which she's raising. And several weeks later, she came to my house and she gave me, you know, it was zucchini season. So I got a couple of zucchinis and some kale from her garden she was starting to get so much produce from her garden that she didn't have space to can it and put it back from last year's cans. So she had so much bounty that she was able to give us some of her canned products from last year as kind of a, a reciprocation for the tobacco sprouts. Um, I think that because we all value taking care of our land so much because we all value the community so much and because we all invest so much in res household resilience, in skill building, uh, that if for any reason this neighborhood were to be cut off from the outside world or, or lose access to certain supplies, that we would be able to, to sustain ourselves to great effect. It's reassuring. It makes Mikhail and I feel secure. I'm sure that other people in the in the neighborhood feel very secure because of that. So what is next for your family and your neighborhood? You mentioned that you're moving. Like what are what's the move and what are the plans for the new house? 
Yeah. So at, at the beginning, you kind of talked about, you asked about how my husband and I choose places and it seems like we're intentional. And in the past, I would say we were young and we were on the wind and we ended up where we ended up. But we are working on moving to a house that is just down the road from us. And it is a remarkable opportunity because uh, because of the nature of this neighborhood, people aren't moving in and out an awful lot. There's not a lot of houses available. And we, because of our relationship with some of our neighbors, were able to know about a house that's going to, that was going to be available uh, before it hit the market. Crucial in this housing market. <laughs> yeah. And you would know these days, having just purchased a house yourself, um, we got a head start on it. Um, it much more meets our needs. Uh, it's more land. It's a little bit more space inside. Uh, it's got a big old pole shed that we could use for a lot of the projects that we want to take on, which include like, um, aquaponic systems and raising goats and possibly even getting a miniature milking cow. We're pretty, we're pretty pumped about it, but it's also like in a really, it's right next door to our church and it's in a location that a lot of people drive next to. So we have plans to fingers crossed when we, when we close and everything works out, we're, we're talking about setting up a little free library there because it would be the perfect location to do it for our neighborhood. I would love to work together with my neighbors to put together a little like cooperative food stand uh, for exchanging the excess of our gardens um, and our animals, of course. Yeah, it really lends itself to those sorts of opportunities and we are hopefully closing on the sale of our house on the 26th and the purchase of the new house on the 30th. And it's going to take a lot of work. The place uh, essentially needs to be entirely refinished. But we are so glad to be able to stay in this neighborhood. We were very worried when we were considering moving uh, just to get a larger piece of property that we were going to have to sacrifice the, the community that we've invested in to leave it. Um, and we've been incredibly lucky to be able to stay here. And our neighbors have been so supportive too. So we're going to have a couple days where we don't have any place to put our animals. And one of our neighbors has offered to let us put our chickens on her land and a different neighbor has offered to let us put our rabbits on their land. And they've been so supportive and excited for us as we make the move and make the choice to stay here probably for the next 10, 15 years, if not much longer. So to close out, what advice would you offer for other people who might be interested in um, increasing their like homegrown food options and um, meeting their neighbors and just making a stronger community? I think that the most important thing to keep in mind with any of these kinds of neighborhood resiliency building projects, whether it's having your own garden and producing your own food, or whether it's just meeting your neighbors, is that you don't need to go big. You don't need to take on a huge project with lots of moving parts that takes up a lot of resources. You don't have to throw a block party. All you have to do to, to make a good first step to knowing your neighbors is 
tape a note to their door that introduces yourself and gives them your phone number. Uh, and if you're feeling a little bit more outgoing than catch somebody on a walk, introduce yourself. And the same goes, obviously, for uh, your own household resilience projects. Um, you don't have to start with a garden the first year you you decide to do it. That's going to meet all of your uh, dietary needs. That's, that's a really tall order. Just grow something. Uh, if you're an apartment dweller and you want to have like better resilience in your food supply, you can uh, stop growing succulents and start growing lettuce. And and it's and lettuce is beautiful. I'm just gonna say, like it's a gorgeous plant and it's really easy to grow. And there are lots of things you can grow even on that scale. Very low budget, low investment, and something now, something small and imperfect now, is much more uh, reasonable, much more important than something huge and big and perfect later. That is a very strong town's message right there. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for um, thanks for being on the show and um, sharing a little bit about your life with us. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Rachel. It was so wonderful to chat with Lauren about her story, especially since most of our time together is taken up with work conversation. So that was a nice change of pace. And I will make sure to share links to all of Lauren's articles in the show notes. She has a great one about backyard chickens and chicken regulations, and then um, that piece about meeting your neighbors that we mentioned. Um, One important announcement, we have a new course in our academy. It's called Creating Housing Opportunities in a Strong Town, and the lead lecturer is Daniel. If you've been wanting to develop an in-depth understanding of housing issues and how to address them with a Strong Towns approach, this is the course for you. It has a whopping 10 and a half hours of learning which uh, you can go through at your leisure, whatever pace you want. And it's worth 10.5 continuing education credits through the AICP. Visit academy.strongtowns.org to sign up today. Friends, my inbox is always open to you. I invite your feedback, tidbits about what you're doing to take action in your community. And I've also been thinking it would be really cool to hear any ideas that you have for questions that I should be asking on the show. Um, if you've been listening for a while, you probably have heard kind of, I have some, some core questions that I usually tend to ask. And I'm curious if there's like things as you're listening that you're like, oh, I really wish you would ask her guests this or that. So send me a message. You can record a voicemail, whatever you'd like. Send that to rachel at strongtowns.org. Rachel with an E, no extra A. And then let's talk about Strong Towns membership. I will do what uh, church ministers often do, which is say, if this is your first time here, please don't worry about donating. But if you have been a listener for a long time, if you are appreciating Strong Towns articles and resources, events that we put on, we do the vast majority of this for free because we want to reach as many people as possible with this message. And so if you care about that, and if you have to share to help us keep creating those resources, to help us keep getting this message out about building more financially resilient places. Please donate. Please become a member. Visit strongtowns.org slash membership to do that today. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you back here next week. Take care.